Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Well, I have to say the United States and its allies are the winners, really, in this um, changing global gas sector. Since the breakup of the Soviet Union, Russia has used natural gas as a weapon against Ukraine and against Europe as a whole. Threatening to shut off the pipes as the weather turns cold is a pretty effective way to influence foreign policy. But now it looks like one of Vladimir Putin's key weapons is losing some of its punch. This week on War College, we're looking at how shifts in the production of oil and natural gas are affecting global security and where that leaves the United States. You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here's your host, Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Reuters opinion editor, Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt with War is Boring. Today, we're talking to Agnia Grigas, author of a forthcoming book, Beyond Crimea, The New Russian Empire. And also, previously, she's published The Politics of Energy and Memory Between the Baltic States and Russia. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. So today, what we were hoping to talk about is when people think of energy and geopolitics, they typically think about oil and the Middle East and the various, you know, struggles in petrostates and, and uh, conflicts there. But, Anya, you spent the last year studying natural gas. Can you sort of talk about why that is? Well, it's true that uh, when most people think about geopolitics and strategic commodities, they think of oil. And historically, gas has played uh, second fiddle to oil. And this was primarily because uh, gas uh, was considered more of a, well, little more than a waste product of oil uh, because of its lower energy density and because of the difficulties in transporting it over long distances. And also because oil was used in the military and industry-based sectors, while gas was more of a, used in the consumer industry, and it was perceived as uh, less of a strategic commodity. Now, for me, though, why I've been so intrigued uh, by gas uh, for a while and spent the last year working on a research project for my newest book um, has been really primarily because of the nature of gas and the fact that regional isolated gas markets make gas a commodity much more susceptible to political influence rather than oil. I mean, oil instead is traded quite freely as part of the global oil market. Right. But typically countries are hooked up together with actual physical pipes uh, to transport gas, right? Meaning there has to be some physical proximity? Exactly. I mean, the relationship... Um, 
between uh, gas uh, exporting and importing countries is much more intense and long term. Countries have to build uh, pipeline infrastructure. Often they co-invest together in that infrastructure and they establish long-term relationships. I mean, these relationships last decades. The gas contracts last decades. Uh, for instance, what we see in the case of Europe and Russia, uh, Europe has been uh, importing Russian gas since the 1960s because that's when the pipelines were first built. And this gas relationship between Europe and Russia has stayed in place pretty much for more than 50 years. So with this time and these direct long-term relationships comes uh, political influence. So which, Agnia, which countries export the most gas? Who holds the most influence in this sphere? Well, um, certainly Russia has been the largest gas exporter for quite some time. Uh, I mean, really, since the 1980s. It's followed by Qatar, uh, which primarily exports LNG, and Norway. And uh, again, yeah, Russia first emerged as a gas exporter in the 1960s. Um, now, however, today is a very interesting point in time. Uh, because we're really at a potential turning point. Uh, in 2011, the United States took over Russia as the world's greatest producer of natural gas. Uh, the U.S. only last held that position as the largest producer in 2001 uh, and has been competing with Russia for this position for three decades. So today, the U.S. potentially stands as a country that, well, can start exporting LNG um, and it can become one of the leading LNG producers and exporters in the, in the world, potentially joining the ranks of Australia or Qatar. So actually, we should explain to listeners, LNG means liquid natural gas. And in order to actually move gas from one place to another, not through a pipeline, it has to be compressed and turned into liquid. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, liquefied natural gas. And liquefied natural gas really changes the game because... Uh, Unlike uh, natural gas, which could only be transported by pipeline, by fixed pipelines, LNG can be shipped in any direction on the seas from any country to any country. And it's really LNG that is creating what people talk about, um, a global gas market. I know with oil, you're talking about enormous tankers that move a lot of oil all at once. Um, I, I just wondered, as far as when you're talking about liquid natural gas? Are we talking about the same size ships? Are we talking about the same, you know, something comparable in terms of the amount of essentially energy that you can take from one place to another on a single ship? Uh, certainly. I mean, the size of um, LNG exports have increased. I mean, and this is, again, not something that's completely new. Uh, LNG exports started in the 60s as kind of experimental shipments. But um, they really gained momentum in 97 when uh, Qatar opened the largest LNG producing and exporting terminal. Uh, and by 2012, it was, I think it was a, really, a real turning point when Japan essentially met all of its gas needs uh, or its energy needs when it had to shut down the nuclear power plants through LNG. So it really demonstrated that countries can turn to LNG to meet their energy needs uh, uh, for the first time in 2012 in significant amounts. But we all, we're also seeing developments in LNG that uh, you can also have smaller tankers that can meet kind of short-term demand uh, in case of emergencies. Uh, LNG is now being, uh, comp well, it's being compressed at CNG. It can be even trucked, railed, and so on. So the flexibility and just variety of ways you can transport gas today is unparalleled to what it used to be. 
so you no longer need these direct pipelines to sell natural gas efficiently. Well, natural gas pipelines are no longer the only means or no longer the predominant, let's say, means. But uh, still, uh, pipelines are often cheaper, uh, oftentimes because the infrastructure is already built, so you don't have to invest once again in into that infrastructure. But we've seen countries, for example, Lithuania, perfect case, in 2015 when it opened its um, LNG terminal. So for the first time in history, the country will now be able to access non-Russian gas. Uh, before that, the country was only able to import gas through the single uh, Russian-controlled pipeline. Now it's importing gas from Norway. Oh, so, uh, yeah, I can see how that really does have an immediate impact on the geopolitics of the situation, right? I mean, in the past, when Russia or the Soviet Union needed to apply pressure, they just, and they have actually cut back supplies, right, of natural gas? Either cutting supplies or threatening higher gas prices have been one of the favorite tactics, really, of Gazprom. They've been using these tactics repeatedly. Or sometimes even if, let's say, cuts were not implemented, Gazprom would ask for political concessions for lower gas prices. And we've seen that very much in Eastern Europe, specifically states where Gazprom had a monopolist position. So where Gazprom had a monopolist position in the market, like um, you know the Baltic states and so on, it was able to drive a much harder bargain for that gas. And we should say that, that Gazprom is the Russian state-controlled gas company, correct? Absolutely, yes. Okay. I mean, you can really view it just as a, an arm of the Kremlin. So isn't it something, it's a very large percentage of the natural gas that Europe uses comes from Russia. Is it more than half? I, could, I couldn't remember. Well, it's actually not quite half. It d depends on the, you know, the data sets you use and how you define Europe. Here, you know, gas scholars can quite debate about this, but it's about 30-40%. What is also interesting, how that gas arrives uh, to Europe. That gas primarily arrives through a pipeline through Ukraine. In fact, in the wintertime, 50% of the gas coming from Russia to Europe is coming through the pipeline in Ukraine. And that's why if we look back at the Russia's gas halts to that pipeline in the winter of 2006, in the winter of 2009, um, this is really when the countries feel it and their populations feel it. Because uh, let's not forget, gas is also used uh, to heat uh, household homes in the winter in Europe. So if you're cutting uh, gas supplies to a country, uh, the country is feeling it immediately, its population is feeling it immediately in the cold winter months. Right, I guess because it's actually, in, in, if you're using a pipeline, it's a little bit more like uh, electricity generation. When you stop the flow, it just stops, as opposed to, you know, you may have an, a stockpile of oil that then you can uh, draw down on. Well, countries... Um this has been an issue in Europe that has been urging countries to increase their gas storage facilities, uh, primarily for these reasons. If there's a gas cut, you could potentially turn to your gas storage. Now, again, gas storage, like other gas infrastructure, is expensive. It takes time to build. So a lot of countries hadn't really invested that much into it into the past. But uh, tensions with Russia, again, in 2006, 2009, and since 2014, are, are changing some of those views. All right. Well, what's... As these gas markets expand, uh, how are petrostates such as Venezuela, Saudi Arabia faring? How, are, how is their influence changing? Well, uh, the changing energy markets and the boom in gas markets is really hurting petrostates uh, in, in several ways. I mean, first of all, the U.S. shale boom 
has boosted U.S. oil and gas production, and that has driven down oil prices. So it's you know, directly hurting the bottom line of Saudi Arabia and Venezuela. But another aspect is uh, the rising popularity of gas. Uh, gas is perceived as the cleanest fossil fuel. So gas is now increasing in the share of the energy mix of many countries, and particularly developing countries. Um, and it's often uh, increasing at the expense of coal and oil. So again, this is hurting the bottom line of Saudi Arabia and Ven countries like Saudi Arabia and Venezuela. Um, but what's interesting also that countries like Saudi Arabia are looking into shale gas development. They recently made an announcement that um, they hope to start uh, commercial development by 2025. And this is really kind of in stark contrast to the perceptions towards gas in the Middle East historically. I mean, really before the 70s, gas was simply kind of uh, flared off if it was perceived to have no economic value. So now countries are also changing their perceptions and are more interested in developing gas. Uh, something else I kind of wanted to circle back around to as we're talking about the way that these energy markets drive conflict, uh, I thought a really good specific example for us to touch on would be Ukraine. Absolutely. Uh, in the Ukrainian war and what, what role gas really played in that, if you could kind of walk mm -hmm. us through that. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, gas really played a, a very big role uh, in relations between Ukraine and Russia overall. And not many people realize, but they have uh, indirectly contributed to the current conflict in eastern Ukraine. And if we go back and we look in the, in the 90s, Ukraine was really accumulating a lot of uh, gas debt from Russia. So it was uh, buying a lot of gas. It couldn't pay for that gas or, you know, didn't want to. But these gas debts um, were not forgiven by Russia. Instead, in 1997, Russia asked for Ukraine to, well, it said that it would cancel its debt. It was about $100 million at the time in exchange for the lease of the naval base in Sevastopol and other facilities in Crimea. So at the time, Ukraine agreed. It got its debt written off. But Russia really got, got official access uh, to these bases and an extension of those leases. And it's that presence of Russian forces and troops in Crimea that would uh, really facilitate Moscow's eventual takeover uh, of the peninsula. Likewise, later in 2010, Ukraine uh, again agreed to extend that lease, uh, that lease agreement until 2042. And for that, Ukraine was to receive a gas price discount. So again, here, Russia always dangled either writing off Ukraine's gas debts or you know, cheaper prices in order to gain inroads in some of the most strategic territories in Ukraine, uh, specifically Crimea. Now, of course, once Russia occupied Crimea, uh, you know, Gazprom canceled that uh, gas price reduction. If we look further, um, some of even Ukraine's relations with the EU have been very much influenced uh, by Ukraine's fear that if it established closer relations with the EU, then Russia would increase gas prices to the country. And that was one of the primary reasons why President Yanukovych refused to sign the EU-Ukraine Association Agreement. And that was the, the spark for the Maidan Revolution that followed. So, I mean, Ukraine is extremely dependent on natural gas rather than oil. Is that right? Well, interestingly, some of this dependence on Russia is a little bit artificial, the, the, the dependence on Russian gas imports. Um, first, Ukraine has its own gas resources, but because it was uh, historically cheaper just to import uh, gas from Russia rather than develop and invest in its own gas fields, 
the situation has evolved uh, as such. Also, the Ukrainian um, industry has been highly inefficient and it has really relied uh, on very intensive gas and energy usage. Uh, now, since the conflict, since 2014, we've seen some changes. Uh, we've seen some changes for greater energy efficiency, or at least efforts towards that. Um, uh, we've seen also that Ukraine is becoming more interested in exploring its own gas fields, uh, even plans for shale gas development. The, the, the problem here is that some of the fields were located in Crimea or around it, so now Ukraine has lost those, or other fields are in close to areas of conflict in eastern Ukraine. So right now, during you know, times of conflict, uh, international companies have not been so eager to explore those areas, you know, to develop there. So uh, as a counterbalance, uh, you said earlier that the United States actually uh, now produces more gas than any other country in the world. Um, now, does the United States actually export no, not in significant quantities. Uh, in the past, the U.S. has exported LNG to Japan, uh, but that has been the only only country. In 2016, there are plans for, for the first time for the U.S. to export uh, LNG beyond, uh, and this is really the company Chenier is driving, uh, driving that initiative. Uh, there are plans and there are contracts in Spain, in Europe, and beyond. Is this going to be in significant amounts and i guess uh, i guess we have to define significant but still if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again juvederm volux xc is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with juvederm volux xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, plans are for significant amounts. Of course, the, the markets have been also not standing still. Prices have been low. Gas prices have been low, which has been, uh, have been reducing some of the incentive to export uh, LNG long distances. I mean, because we have to take into account that to ship the LNG from United States to Europe, you have to add the liquefaction costs, the shipment costs, then again, the gasification costs. But many analysts are optimistic that American LNG will, will make its way in exports. The Energy Information Agency, a branch of the U.S. government, uh, predicts that the, by 2025, the U.S. will be a major 
major LNG exporter. All right, so that, that begs the question. So as America and other countries enter into the markets and become big gas exporters and create more competition in these energy markets, what happens to a country like Russia who uses gas exports as a primary motive of influence on other countries in the region? Well, you, you summed it up, certainly. Um, their influence will wane, especially as they lose their monopolist position in specific markets. Um, Overall, the gas market is becoming, I would say, a buyer's market, not a seller's market. That means that uh, it is really buyers who will dictate the terms rather than the sellers. Um, Or at least the sellers won't be able to exert the same type of political pressure or ask for political concessions as uh, both sides drop gas contracts. Now, I mean, this doesn't mean that Russia will not remain a large or even potentially the largest gas exporter. And it doesn't mean that it will not be a significant supplier to Europe. I think really the most significant fact will be that it will lose its monopolist position in many European markets, as it did in Lithuania in 2015. Countries will build up LNG terminals, will turn to reverse flow, which is essentially when gas can flow to both directions in the same pipeline. And that's essentially what Ukraine is doing right now, since it's tensions with Russia. Uh, It's receiving gas reverse flow from European countries rather than Russia. So all of these developments will really reduce Russia's political clout. And as that kind of economic and political clout wanes, do you see, do do you feel that they would become, they they would use more traditional methods to exert influence in the region? Do you think they would use their military more? Or is that just pure speculation too far off? Well, I think, uh, you know, it's tough to speculate um, the policies that the Kremlin will pursue. But I I think uh, what we see is uh, that the current Russian government is, uh, one, it's determined to hold on to its power. And two, it seeks very much to regain. And if it cannot regain, then it seeks to project a great power status, It seeks to be a great power on the international stage. So I don't see even as um, Russia's uh, revenues may dwindle, as some of that uh, political clout may wane, especially in the European markets, uh, I think Russia will still seek uh, in in other ways, as we see now in Syria, to try to project that strong image uh, and be a strong player. If I can ask about uh, another country that I find kind of interesting, uh, Iran, which is trying to get back into the oil business, is there any effect that uh, might happen to them as well? Do they produce natural gas or are they solely dependent on uh, crude? Well, Iran actually, interestingly, Iran and Qatar, they share the single largest gas field in the world. It's the North-South Pars field. And in fact, Iran has uh, possibly the second largest gas reserves in the world after Russia. Now, in the past, because of sanctions and Iran's isolation, it hasn't been developed as much as Qatar. And certainly Iran hasn't been able to export the gas. Um, Again, we have to remember with gas imports, infrastructure is extremely important. Um, So it means that Iran would have to invest in significant either pipeline infrastructure or LNG terminals. Um, Both of them are long-term expensive projects, um, and it's uncertain who would be the investors in those projects to date. I'd say maybe the LNG terminal uh, maybe is more likely in the medium term, let's say, but even then I would say the medium term than than the near term. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. It doesn't sound like... 
a number of different countries may experience somewhat negative impacts. So who's the winner? Well, I have to say the United States and its allies are the winners, really, in this um, changing global gas sector. The U.S. is emerging as a significant producer. If uh, the kind of the optimistic projections are, are met, it could uh, become a large LNG exporter. This LNG could be used to secure Europe, to help Europe diversify away from Russian gas sources. Uh, it could also be used to constrain Russia's kind of political cloud from gas exports. I think uh, uh, LNG exports to Asia could also woo the Asian countries, which are very energy hungry, and they're specifically very gas hungry, because again, it's a cleaner fossil fuel. So really, gas could make uh, the 21st century, you know, once again, belong to the United States and its allies. I have a question to follow up on that. How, how important is fracking to the United States energy production? Well, fr fracking has been one of the drivers of the shale boom. Um, this is a technique uh, that has been in, um, well, really perfected since the 70s, uh, but uh, first, uh, first tried out in really the, even the 1820s. So this is a very old technique, but uh, uh, it has been you know, much more modernized and become much more effective uh, uh, together with uh, horizontal drilling to create some of these uh, vast gains in shale gas production. Okay, so we have two final questions to sort of wrap up. Um, there's certainly one, actually, what you're talking about with uh, hydraulic fracturing or fracking, there's definitely concern about the environmental cost to that. Polluted groundwater is one, uh, something that's certainly been talked about, even earthquakes. <laughs> yeah, um, I live in I live in North Texas, and that is something that we've been experiencing frequently in the past few years. Is earthquakes when we used to not have them. Don't know if that's necessarily connected to fracking, but that is the speculation. Certainly, there are environmental concerns associated with fracking. Um, there have been a lot of studies, but I think it's very important for the United States and um, you know government regulation to ensure that uh, the shale industry is successful without environmental disasters or without significant environmental costs, because other countries are also looking to the United States example. You know, the United States has been most successful in this area, but it has also faced some of the environmental damage. And I think if the United States can set a good example here and set some of the best practices, then there will be a lot of other countries that follow and follow some of these best practices as they pursue their own shale development programs. When we talk about having natural gas as a cleaner alternative or perceived as the cleanest fossil fuel, how clean is it when compared to gasoline or other uh, uh, liquid products? Well, it's certainly considered cleaner than gasoline or than, uh, than coal and so on. Um, I don't want to speculate how much. It's definitely considered the cleanest fossil fuel. It has the lowest carbon emissions linked to the, to gas usage. So. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's not. I mean, it's still a fossil fuel when you get down to it. It certainly is a fossil fuel, and that's why it is perceived as a bridge fuel. Some people believe that we can rely on gas until we come to greater advancements with renewables. And gas can serve as this bridge fuel. Now, of course, critics say that if we focus too much on gas, then we're not making those necessary investments in greener forms of energy. 
So there's a, there's a bit of a debate about it, but really at this point in time, um, gas remains as uh, one of the, the cleanest and most effective sources of energy. All right, so uh, I want to thank uh, Anya Grigas for being with us today. I think people are still used to thinking of this as an oil world and therefore having people at the mercy of uh, the Middle East, but it, it's interesting to hear that it's changing. Well, it, it's been a pleasure to be here, and uh, the International Energy Agency said in 2011 that we're entering the era of gas, and I think it may very well be true, or at least for the first part of the 21st century. Thank you so much for joining us. Next time on War College. The reality is the old order in the Middle East where the United States was a guarantor of certain countries, it's died because of the fact that it was not sustainable beforehand. Regardless if it suited people's preferences, it just was fractious and it was not going to work. Mm -hmm.